1: an infectious disease physician, former CDC official and current Chief medical officer at Osmosis, an online medical learning platform, the current COVID-19 pandemic. Dr. Desai, welcome to the program.
0: Thank you so much for inviting me.
1: Dr. Desai's bio is of course posted on the podcast website. On background, listeners are likely aware the COVID-19 pandemic has to date infected over 560,000 Americans, constituting slightly more than 30 percent of the world's total number of infections. The U.S. accounts for 5 percent of the world's population but has suffered 20 percent of worldwide debts or to date 22,000, a number that's likely substantially underestimated. Now exactly one month after President Trump declared a national emergency, the federal government's response has to date been to be polite disorganized. For example, In absence of federal efforts to purchase necessary P.E. and medical equipment, states are forced to competently bid for the same supplies. As former CMS administrator Don Berwick recently stated, quote-unquote, we're in a lot more trouble than we need to be. In addition, since the U.S. still lags in per capita testing, Berwick stated further, we are flying blind unless we find a way to find the people who are infected. Comparatively, Germany, for example, has suffered far fewer infections and deaths per capita, due in part to early and widespread testing, a capable healthcare system. Germany, for example, has been accepting patients from Italy and Spain, a population that has observed social distancing guidelines, and I'll add a chancellor with a Ph.D. in chemistry. Concerning tangible steps the government has taken to date, this past Friday, HHS announced it was awarding $30 billion of the $100 billion in grant monies authorized under the March 27th passed CARES Act to support provider response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Despite HHS noting in its press release the monies were being distributed in a quote-unquote fair manner, Kentucky, the Senate Majority Leader's Mitch McConnell state, received $311,000 per COVID-19 case while New York, the Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer State received $11,800 per case. With me to discuss COVID-19, public health emergency, is Dr. Rishi Desai. So with that, as a somewhat lengthy background, uh, Dr. Desai, let me just begin by asking, what's your assessment or sense of where we are uh, to date relative to this frequently referenced uh, curve?
0: Yeah, thank you. So. You know, one of the things that we're all following is how many new cases there are per day. And for a long time, there were more new cases each new day. And that has just started to not be the case where the number of new cases was uh, is now kind of the same day on day or in some places uh, starting to come down slightly. In other places, that's not the case. So it is definitely state by state. But as a country, it is very accurate to say that the curve has started to flatten, if that's what you're getting at.
1: Sure. Thank you. And you're right. Good point that it does vary uh, by state uh, substantially. Let me ask you um, next. Relative to the projections of mortality, you, you're well aware that numbers were as high as 240,000. This past week, they've been revised to as low as 60,000. Uh how accurate or what's your sense relative to where we'll be uh, sometime midsummer summer uh, relative to deaths?
0: Uh, all right. So midsummer. let's say you're talking maybe mid-July, somewhere in that area? Yep. Generally, okay.
1: the, the, the discussion's been, the projections have been March through July.
0: Sure. So, uh, and I say mid-July only because uh, that's my birthday. So I'm just using <laughs> that as a benchmark here. So
1: Mine as well. Mine around as well. my birthday.
0: Okay, so my birthday is July 15th. Around, around that time, here's what I expect. If we continue to isolate, let's say we continue everything as we're doing today, nothing changes, uh, in two weeks, we don't have, you know, every state kind of saying, you know, you can go back out now. If we continue what we're doing now through all of May, let's just say. So let's say by June, we start to de-isolate, but let's say through May, we continue doing what we're doing now. We're going to end up with roughly 60, 65,000 deaths. That's what I expect. Now, in two weeks, let's say that um, the federal government says, you know what, we declare that this thing is over. We think that we've won. And they start raising a banner of victory. And let's say people stop isolating. Then we're going to get a resurgence. And what I mean by that is now we're going to get more outbreaks because, of course, people are out and about again, going to musical venues and hanging out with each other at pool parties. Once that starts happening, the number of cases uh, and the number of deaths will not be sixty to 65,000 deaths. It'll be much higher than that because we basically uh, stopped doing all the right things way too early.
1: Okay, thank you. My, my third question on state of play is what's your general assessment of how effective we've been uh, as in, in, in some as a nation relative to social distancing efforts? Some state governors uh, filed executive orders earlier requiring this, some uh, much later, particularly in the South. Uh, I did mention Germany, they seem to have have done a a very good job uh, at obeying or abiding by uh, the policy. What's your general sense of the US uh, population in, in abiding by this policy?
0: I think most people that live in states where it's been declared a stay-at-home state have done a good job of abiding by it. I think the minority people haven't. But here's the thing: uh, you, you don't you don't kind of succeed against COVID-19 with most people being on board. You need everyone on right. board. Because what happens is that when a minority of people don't play by the rules, those people spread it. They get sick. problem in the U.S. is that we did it in a very fragmented way. And we knew that this spreads person to person. And yet, in spite of that knowledge, many states didn't act quickly. And even today, as I'm talking to you, a handful of states still have not acted to have a stay-at-home order. There's no federal recommendation or mandate for a stay-at-home order because of, uh, well, who knows why that's the case. But the fact that we don't have that and that we're already talking. don't understand that we've been beaten up badly for a couple of months. We're barely at a point where this fight is beginning to equalize. But we're in the fight. And you don't start talking about you know, backing away if you're still in the fight. You have to keep fighting. And that's what I mean by, by saying that I think we should have done it earlier and more aggressively. And even today, we need more talk about isolation rather than de-isolation.
1: Okay, before we go into uh, the federal government's response today, I do want to spend a, a couple minutes, since you are a infectious disease physician, on the science here, and what can you provide our listeners relative to an, uh, an understanding of this particular virus? We do know it's one of several coronaviruses. This is the latest thereof. What's different or what's particularly challenging or threatening about COVID-19?
0: So this virus hits a sweet spot in many ways. So, for example, it's just contagious enough to spread around quickly. We know the R-naught or the spreadability of it from one person to multiple people is around two, two and a half people get it for every one person that, that has it now. So it's very spreadable, but it's also, and there are many things that are very spreadable, but it's also extremely fatal in some populations, you know, roughly one in seven people in the U.S. is over the age of 65, that's a high-risk population. So it's, it's extremely fatal in some groups, but it's also very contagious and spreadable in other groups. So that's why this particular virus is so problematic. Other viruses that we've had to deal with in the past have been even more contagious, like measles, but we have a vaccine against them. Uh, here, we don't have a vaccine. Uh, other times, there are advantages where, you know, we might say, well, we have some immunity, you know, with flu. Year on year, we have some immunity because the the viruses sometimes are the same ones that circulate from one year to the next. With COVID-19, we have, as a population, really almost no immunity. So there are some major flaws from a scientific or biological standpoint that it's taken advantage of. Um, now, now just to extend that a little bit further, there's some social flaws that it's taken advantage of as well. So, for example, we don't have a centralized health we're kind of blind as to who has it and who doesn't. So it's taking care of, or it's taking advantage of a lot of flaws, both on the biological side, as well as the public health and social science side.
1: Thank you. I do want to ask you on, on the science, a massive amount of discussion about developing a vaccine. You noted that we obviously don't have one in this instance. What can you, uh, what's your general uh, assessment of developing a vaccine and by when?
0: Yeah, so there are about five candidates right now. Of the five candidates, uh, I believe one just went into Phase 2 today, today being Monday. Um, the other four, one of them is actually in the Phase 1, Phase 2 trial. The other three are in Phase 1. So that means, that gives you a sense of like where they are along the lines of FDA clearance. So they're early on. The ones that are furthest along are expected to be done in 2021. So that means for the rest of this year, through the rest of summer, fall, and winter, We're on our own. We don't have a vaccine. Now, in terms of treatment, just to dive over into that, there are a number of proposed treatments. They're also all being researched at the moment and are in various stages of uh, safety and efficacy, meaning are they safe to use and do they actually even work? So we have a lot of stuff that's in the works, but on the vaccine side, we're looking at 2021. On the therapy side, probably later this year, but it's unclear when and how effective they'll be.
1: Okay, and just to make note, uh, you mentioned phase one and two. We have to get to phase four, obviously, as, as the protocol requires. Relative to public our public health system, just to note, it's, uh, let's just say, been compromised, at least by the fact over the 08 to 18 period when the U.S. population grew by 10%, the public health system workforce decreased by about 25%. Let's go to the uh, government's response to date. You probably know since this is the one-month point since the president declared in the national emergency, a lot of stories today about what the president promised we would see from Google turned out not to be the case, that there would be these drive-through test, testing sites. I think the sum total one month later are eight, so that largely didn't prove out to be the case. What's your general assessment? I did mention, of course, the federal government's uh, Lack of, for example, appointing FEMA uh, to purchase uh, supplies and PPE. What's your general assessment again of the government's response to date?
0: It's been really weak, and it's been weak not just for the last month, but I would say for the last few months. the The challenge is that we definitely need, on a few counts. Let's go through this in order. Please. So on testing, yeah. So on testing, you know, we we didn't start out early enough because we essentially have public health labs and we have non-government labs. The public health labs were told by the CDC not to use the WHO standard uh, test kit. They were told, hey, the, you know, the CDC is going to come up with something. The CDC sent out faulty test kits. So public health labs across America were saying, well, you know what? We don't have much to do in, in the way of testing because these testing kits we got from the CDC, they don't work. And that's why the testing was so abysmal in the first few weeks. Now, then in mid-March uh, and in parts of March, the federal government started allowing the non-governmental side to step in. They said, you know what, if you're an academic center, if you're a, uh, a company, you're going to get these emergency use authorizations to help scale up testing. Well, that's great, but it would have been even better or greater had we gotten that six weeks previous. So these EUAs, emergency use authorizations, came late. Having said that, the testing has gotten better. So if you look at February, you know, January, February, March, we did about a million tests of the RNA, uh, the RT-PCR, And if you look at the first week of April, we did a million tests in just that one week. So we obviously had the capability, right? We were literally just hamstrung by the lack of FDA moving quick enough to get these tests out there. That was the main problem. Now, that's just testing. Now we're getting into the second type of test called antibody testing. And we're going to see whether the FDA repeats the mistake. So on the antibody testing side at the moment, The same thing is happening. Lots and lots of these non-governmental companies and universities are saying, hey, we've got an ELISA. We've got this home testing kit. We'd like to get it approved. And right now, most of those, the vast majority of those are not approved to be used. So we're going to see if the FDA moves faster this time around with authorizing them through this emergency use authorization. And if they do, great. If they don't, then we're going to be stuck again because that serology testing is what's going to help decide who has been exposed and who hasn't. And that's one part of getting our country back uh, online. So that's just the testing part. I can go to other parts of this response if you want as well.
1: Well, the one, I will say on the tests, I did read, I think it's just today, South Korea uh, announced or made public that they are actually sending the US 600,000 test kits. Let me go to, uh, I'll set aside the medical equipment, particularly the discussion about respirators, but it, it seems in a in an advanced industrialized country that the problem of, of manufacturing and distributing adequate supplies of PPE would not have been as daunting as it has been and, and seemingly remains. Now there's this whole national stockpile, begs the national stockpile issue, and Jared Kushner's comments thereof, etc. What What's your understanding of why the PPE problem has been so daunting?
0: A few issues. So it's basically an issue of supply and demand. Our supply is low, the demand is high, and as a result, we're getting bidding wars from state governors that are fighting for the PPE so that they can get it to their hospitals, so that the hospitals can get it to their healthcare providers. And in the absence of all of that, you've got all sorts of, um, issues coming up with healthcare providers are saying, you know, we're not, we're not getting the PPE we need, we're unsafe, our healthcare, uh, administrators are not really, uh, Looking out for us, they're putting us in unsafe situations. So, a lot of infighting is happening as a result. But if you go back to the supply and demand issue, the way to increase supply, there's a few ideas here. One, what we should do and should have done is relax the uh, imports of PPE from places that could send them to us. So, you mentioned uh, imports from South Korea around testing. There could be imports that could have been relaxed around uh, PPE from China. China has and is the biggest manufacturer of PPE. If we could import more of that PPE when we need it, that would have been helpful. Other ideas are more creative solutions. What about 3D printing of face masks and using things like the Defense Production Act, not just to put leverage on 3M, which is a manufacturer of, of uh, face masks, but actually say, hey, let's actually step up other creative solutions to create PPE uh, for our healthcare providers. And then the other thing is that there's this whole idea, and this is actually happening out of desperation. But of recycling PPE, what if you could actually take an N95 mask, really, literally put it in an oven, cook it for 30 minutes to 75 degrees, take it out, and, and reuse it? That's been done at Stanford. So Stanford has proposed a solution. They're doing it. And those kinds of things could be rolled out nationally. The problem is that we don't have a national strategy around PPE. We could solve this with creative things. I just mentioned a few to increase supply. The demand not going away. So we just have to increase supply and get the logistics to get the PPE to where it has to go.
1: Right. Thank you. Let me go to uh, the effects and uh, the government response, for thereof, as it relates to much in the last couple of weeks. And this is no surprise whatsoever to anyone who's studied uh, disparities in public health, population health issues. And that is the effect that the uh, pandemic is having on poor or minority communities. Um, The government response hasn't seemed to have been really much of anything. Now, of course, it's difficult because this population has frequently or disproportionately underlying medical conditions, Um, but relative to relief, what more do you think can be done? Uh, There's been some discussions about funding pop-up clinics, et cetera, in these communities, but what do you think can be done, should be done, try to reduce the burden on those populations that almost always uh, are those that disproportionately uh, suffer.
0: It's a a good point. And it's uh, important to mention that this is happening not just in the U.S., but around the world, right? So the hardest hit countries will be uh, sub-Saharan African countries and island countries where they're going to be hit harder with Mm COVID-19 than than anyone else and, and are often forgotten. Here in the U.S., you're right. Like this has definitely not been uh, equal among all groups, and groups like African-Americans have been hit hard and will continue to get hit hard by COVID-19. Uh, in my reading, roughly one in three folks that requires hospitalization are African-American, yet, of course, we know that the population in the U.S. is not 33% African-American, so they're disproportionately getting hospitalized. And part of that might be because we know that there is a higher rate of heart disease, and obesity among that group. So part of it could be a biological phenomenon. There's also, like I was mentioning at that a social phenomenon, right? So we know that African Americans are more often going to be in vulnerable groups and be exposed to COVID-19 more. So, for example, they're going to be potentially in these essential worker jobs. So public transportation, um, running grocery stores, in these jobs where they're exposed day in and day out folks with disease in a way that a lot of other folks may not be exposed. So there's an exposure issue. We also know that there is a higher proportion of African-Americans in institutional settings like prisons and and also in homeless populations. So these are groups that are routinely going to get more affected by disease like COVID-19. In terms of solutions, there are some clear ones that I think we should start thinking about because if we don't protect the least fortunate and vulnerable among us, We all suffer. And that's what this disease is pointing out very clearly, right? Like if we want to get everybody healthy, we need to make sure that the least fortunate among us have a way of staying protected. One example of how to do that is housing. So this is a great time to start thinking about how to house people that don't have homes. And we have potentially a huge social benefit here. If we could get people in housing instead of being in homeless encampments, then those folks are less at risk for getting the disease and that disease then doesn't have a chance to spread and affect the entire community. And of course, housing in general is a good thing anyway. So this is one solution that we could offer. And there are plenty of motels and hotels that are probably empty from, you know, the the, the fact that travel isn't happening and tourism is dropped off. And maybe the government can negotiate and say, hey, maybe we could buy out some of these large essential homing, you know, housing structures to house folks and give them a place to stay that they're not on the street. That's one simple example, but things like this are are so important.
1: Right, particularly the homeless or unsheltered, particularly vulnerable at risk. I do want to touch upon or make mention or ask you to comment on, and there's been increasing recognition of this, and that is uh, the mental health effects uh, here. Um, Could you explain uh, those uh, which accompany or are coincident with uh, this physical pandemic?
0: Yeah, I I think the biggest issue is really around anxiety and depression. I mean, people are living in very isolated lives right now, are not around family and friends, during a time when there's a lot of existential angst. There's also an economic threat, right? People are losing their jobs. We're seeing unemployment numbers skyrocket. The Dow Jones falling. People are worried about their retirement. There's a lot of stuff happening and people questioning both their own existence as well as you know their future existence. And so amidst all this, I think what we need to do is start thinking about ways to empower people. Uh, the best way to do that, I believe, is through information, just saying, hey, look, this is where we're at. This is why we think we're doing X, Y, and Z. This is when we think it's going to be over. And making sure everyone is on the same page, I think that that would be really helpful. A good example of that is these nightly uh, chats from Governor Cuomo in New York, uh, the hardest hit state, where mm-hmm. he literally is talking to folks about what's going on, but benefit there, I think, is, is dual, like, yes, you're kind of laying out the facts and figures, but what that does is it tells everybody that there's a leader that they can trust and rely on during this crisis, and I think that creates a great sense of comfort uh, throughout the entire city and state of New York.
1: Right. Trust in all this is a very important, critical issue. I will just make a quick comment on uh, the economy, which, of course, is largely in free fall. Many economists see this as more severe than the 0809 Great Recession because that, was the effect of uh, result rather of of liquidity shortages here. This is largely about just fundamental solvency of small businesses across all sectors. So it's a substantial company economic problem. Let's go to though, I do want to spend a few minutes on what what can we learn from this? I think it's pretty obvious or I hope it would be that per your comment about um, minority communities, the homeless, uh, one would hope that after this, we'd realize that universal health care coverage uh, is a good thing, and uh, we should make greater efforts since we're pushing back to 30 million uh, uninsured, 28, 29 million approximately. Well, if you could tick off any number of lessons we should learn, and that means policies we should reform after all this, what would be top of mind for you? I think,
0: I think that's a great place to start. What I would say is we should have to dig deeper and deeper. So what I mean by that is healthcare policy, uh, would, would indicate that in this situation, if we had a centralized, uh, insurance payer, that would make sense. And that could be a government payer. And that would help a lot, right? So for example, you talked about testing being covered, but what about treatment? What about physical therapy afterwards for all the folks that have COVID-19? How do we pay for all that? Are they paying themselves? How does that work? So I think having a centralized payer makes sense. But digging deeper, there's also public health infrastructure that we need to build up. We need to build up better capacity of testing and understand that we can't just, you know, chip, chip, chip away these public health budgets. Because then when there is a pandemic, and you mentioned in the outset that we're going to, of course, see another coronavirus uh, probably in the next decade, that we do have something strong to rely on. In fact, that's why South Korea responded so aggressively this time around, is they learned their lesson from the other coronaviruses that they got affected by so hopefully we'll learn our lesson on the public health side as well and increase public health budgets so that they can actually have the testing capabilities at the drop of the hat. The next thing I would say is to dig deeper now, why don't we have a centralized healthcare and centralized kind of public health budget as an important investment? It's because in general, we have deinvested in science. And the importance of investing in science means that not only do we invest in technology, Right now we're recognizing the value of the healthcare industry, but also pharmaceutical industry. And, you know, part of that is the biomedical device, you know, industry. All these industries are part of why we've been scientific leaders in the past. I think making sure that we invest in those sectors are so important. And then going one step below that, education, STEM education in the U S has fallen off. We know we're not leaders in STEM education, haven't been for some time. I think making sure that we raise would be something that is very, very important. So what it's exposed is the fact that we have a country now that is not the most scientifically minded. In fact, many people still, you know, throw around conspiracy theories of coronavirus even today. Mm-hmm. And we have a country where a lot of people are uninsured. We have a country where we haven't really invested in public health testing or surveillance uh, of testing or using testing. And, and as a result, COVID-19 has just ripped us up much more like the countries that are, are stronger.
1: Right, per uh, STEM education, I, I, I certainly noted uh, that the Chancellor of Germany has a PhD in chemistry on purpose, uh, so that was not by accident. So, uh, Dr. Desire, at our time, I want to thank you for this overview, timely overview, certainly, of where we're at relative to the pandemic, and let's certainly hope that we keep uh, mortality uh, below the projected numbers. Whatever the number is, it's certainly tragic. Um, And let's hope that we learn some policy lessons from this. So with that, Dr. Desai, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for having me.
0: You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archived program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.